Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. And once again, welcome back if you're a repeat listener. If you're brand new, hold on tight. This one's going to be a fun one. All right, I'm going to talk today with Chris Cummings. He's an advisor to Falcon Store and just somebody who has a really, really fantastic history in the storage industry and, and just the tech industry in general. Does some really neat stuff uh, on a personal level that we'll talk about as well. Before we get to Chris, let's jump in and make sure we thank all of our amazing sponsors who make this happen. Of course, I cannot forget to thank the people that you need when it comes to everything you need for your data protection needs. I said need a lot there. You know what you need? You need Veeam. That's what you need. You need to go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and you can check out Veeam software. Everything you need for your data protection needs. In fact, I say this literally because I use them for backing up my cloud resources. I use them to back up my on-prem resources on VMware. And you can use them for backing up your cloud native, stateful loads using Kasten. Really, really cool stuff as well. Teams, Office 365, you thought that stuff was in the cloud so it's automatically protected? You're so wrong. It's not protected. So get it protected. Go to Veeam. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. Let them know that you came from the old podcast. And they're uh, great, great friends. So uh, we actually got some really neat campaign stuff that's coming up soon. So stay tuned for uh, for some neat downloadable goodness as well. Anyways, let's get back in. One more big thing to thank you. If you're looking to connect better with people around uh, technical sales or product marketing and product management, then I got the guide for you. In fact, I wrote a book called The Four-Step Guide to Delivering Extraordinary Software Demos That Win Deals. This is really targeted at folks that want to up their game and better connect and better be able to tell a story. I've literally had a couple of decades in being sold software, and I've been doing it now for a decade myself. Uh, so go to velocityclosing.com, and you can get hooked up with an amazing deal that includes mentoring, coaching, all sorts of good stuff. So go to velocityclosing.com. All right, Chris Cummings, he's a really great chat. Uh, enjoy the show. I'm Chris Cummings. I'm an advisor to Falcon Store Software, and uh, welcome to the Disco Posse podcast. Chris, uh, thank you very much for joining today. First of all, because through uh, through a friend in the industry, we got connected, and I was I'm always excited when you see people, and then immediately you research them, and you take a look, and they're LinkedIn, and you see all these people you know together, and you start mm -hmm. to think to yourself, why in goodness name have we already talked before? And we probably have at some point through different things and events and such, but. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, and for folks that are brand new to you, maybe if you'd want to take a take a minute, introduce yourself, uh, and you know, let folks know where they can find you online, and we're gonna jump into the conversation. Sure. So again, my name is Chris Cummings, and I've been in the in and around the storage industry now for about twenty years, and uh, in all forms, whether that's been on the primary side, whether that's on the secondary storage side, whether that's on the cloud side. And uh, today I'm speaking on behalf of uh, Falcon Store Software, which is a company that's been around for quite some time, but is finding uh, a new home as enterprises around the world are adopting cloud faster than I think anyone thought they would, you know, before the start of the pandemic. So it's been, you know, it's been a terrible situation for the world, but in many ways it's been a reasonably good situation for the company. Yeah, and this is why I think it was such an interesting topic to cover. You know, for folks that are in tech, they may have known Falcon Store, and there's really is like a, a long sort of storied history, lots of challenges in the organization. Uh, and I mean, as with many things, I mean, storage is such a, an interesting market in that there's regular sort of a birth of startups that come out and then there's a, a sort of the mass reconsolidation to some of the major players and then we get these sort of waves of uh, of new phases in in storage innovation and then you know i'd say we're actually 
I saw a lot of people that suddenly left major companies after their startups were acquired. So we're probably about a year away from another wave uh, coming out. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to actually like, let's explore Falcon store kind of from the very beginning. That's how long has the company been being around? Yeah. So the company has been doing this work for about 20 years, uh, really in the same, same area, which has been backup and long-term archive. And, um, you know, I got to know the company because when I started in at NetApp about 20 years ago, one of my teams managed the Falcon store relationship. And so oh, that, uh, <laughs> that's how I got to know the company in, in the Wayback machine. And as you said, really has gone through a bunch of twists and turns. Um, and, uh, not unlike many, uh, kind of went from being an appliance to being software only and right. went from being a channel company to a direct company. And now we're firmly back into being a, a channel focused company. So, um, these twists and turns that you're so, you see so commonly, this company has been through all of them and probably, probably a couple of times, but you know, the, the good news has been that this last turn towards channel software and being a cloud enabler has been, you know, that is really sticking and finding a home for many enterprises now. It brings up the interesting thing that, in fact, the vision and the, the, the original team vision and a lot of the original engineering, in fact, was probably ahead of its time. And it takes... Yeah a while for the industry to actually catch up and the the consumer market you know we'll say i say the the customer market not consumer so like the enterprise consumer market we as an enterprise you know industry are horrifyingly slow at adopting innovative technologies and new technologies and we also have the problem that we look on the like approved po you know history and we tend to always go, well, I like your I like your technology. It looks really interesting. My team loves it. How long have you guys been around? And it's like, oh, we're a five-year-old company and we came out of stealth two years ago. And, and they're like, okay, we'll tell you what, get to customer 100 and then give us a call. And so then you go through that phase. And then from there, you know, somebody says, oh, okay, well, I think we're kind of ready for it. And then meanwhile, the major player vendors then say, hey, we do that thing too over here. When they, they usually don't, but they just, at least they've got the ability to promise and, and ride it out financially when they fail. <laughs> That's right. And we see both sides of the spectrum, right? Which is, you know, when you talk to any IT organization, naturally there's a group of folks that are looking for it. Show me the shiny new object, right? And I actually came from uh, one of the customers that I was, uh, or companies I was working with most recently was in the software-defined scale-out block space. And so that was a new technology built for early adopters, no question. Um, and then this company is more of the, we've seen all that, we've tried those things, we had some successes, we had some failures. How about showing me something that actually works? And so it's it's nice to be on this side of the equation at this point where we have over an exabyte of data under management and we have a thousand active customers. Um, but for many of these customers, they are still like, like perhaps some of the listeners, they're in that transition period from an on-prem focus to a cloud focus and they're trying to get the right mix because we know that for most enterprises, it's going to be a balance of the two working together. Right. Yeah. The, the, the thing about this race to the cloud is it's a turtle like pace at which it goes. And in fact, it's not a, not like the entire race ends up there. We've got to find what's the right data. What's the right application profile to leave behind, to leave out there in the cloud, what can be containerized, and then this is where that, yeah, the, the, when it all comes down to it, it's where the data lives and how we access the data that is in fact going to be the real decision maker, not the CIO reading in network world that the cloud is the future. And I, I date myself. I'm sure network world is not even a magazine anymore, but I used to remember those days of coming in and they'd say, Eric, we need to find out why we're not in the cloud. Like what happened? <laughs> What'd you read on the weekend? <laughs> right. Right. Or I remember talking to Matt Eastwood from IDC 
a couple years ago. And uh, at that point in time, he was talking about, I think the number was 60% of, of enterprises repatriating from, repatriating, excuse me, from the cloud. Yeah. And when I challenged him on that, he said, no, actually the number is more like 80% of enterprises are repatriating 50% of their applications. <laughs> and, and so that's not necessarily doomsday for the cloud. That Those were applications that were born in the cloud. They weren't meant to live there forever. But I think, you know, now we're at the next, the next round of this, which is how much is going to be on-prem and how much is going to be in the cloud and what's the right mix. And, and finding that right mix is going to be different when you're talking about you know, a primary application or you know, a tertiary application, or you're talking about primary storage or, or secondary data. Right. Yeah. Well, and this is where it becomes the interesting thing. And I think we've we've realized that there's a very key difference in separating, you know, where and how data needs to be accessed. Mm -hmm. And the idea of, you know, at one point we talked about HSM, the hierarchical storage management, and there were some vendors that were getting to that game of like auto tiering and moving stuff in and out uh, based on, you know, utilization profile. Most of it was really like you right click and say, mark this as slow <laughs> and move it down to slow disk. Mm -hmm. But then again, too early for enterprises to really understand how their applications behaved and it was expensive to do at any kind of scale. So then yeah. we went back to, okay, I'm going to, as a storage architect, design multiple tiers and, and such, but then I was using hardware platforms to back it. And then I was now having to make different <clears throat> business and architectural decisions together. And now we have software that becomes the perfect abstraction. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, I was part of the team, for instance, uh, at NetApp when we bought Bicast, which is the storage grid object storage product. Right. And I also was part of the leadership team that built CleverSafe and we sold that to IBM and that's now IBM Cloud Object Storage. So this notion that of transparently migrating data from the most hot, the most expensive to the coldest, the cheapest, it's a great idea until you, the administrator, have to be responsible for it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, and, then it's, and then it's the idea that costs you um, a bunch of sleep and, and, it, when it, and in the worst of times, uh, potentially your job because that data is so critical. Now, we've seen the folks from AWS are really trying to make that a lot simpler in terms of migrating from various forms of S3 down to, to Deep Glacier. Right. But having policies and automation that can do that uh, for your data that's on-premise and in the cloud, that's clearly where, where this is going. And that's actually something that Falcon Store does. And, you know, it's kind of a, who knew, right? When I got here, who knew? I had no idea. That is, and this is the one thing that I really, it pains me so much because I know, like, I purposefully go out of my way to follow companies. And even then, I still miss fantastic stories yeah. and stuff that's going on. And we get the unfortunate problem, too, of, oh, yeah, I remember looking at Falcon Store back in, like, 2012, and they were... And that's it. It now that influences future interactions because we're humans and we have this like referential point. And so when you go through changes and new engineering and new platforms, new products, you got to go out and, you know, hit not just your customer base, but also the industry. And it's a, it's an expensive process because you're going up against the you know you know NetApps and the and the major players of the world who have multi-million dollar budgets that they can just throw at advertising and such you know so when you're going through McCarran Airport on the way to whatever show of choice back when we used to go to airports and shows yeah you know you just see it plastered with you know some vendor and it's meanwhile you've got this fantastic technology and you're like no no remember look at this, like, you know, we've been here for a long time. We're doing this well. We've got a thousand customers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of remind people that you're much more than what they may remember you for. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's also a different dimension of success, right? The the success for Dell or, you know, uh, NetApp or, you know, an IBM is is so much built around risk management around the revenue line. And that's really the the focus. And uh, but for a company of our like ours, yes, we have to be thinking about the financials. We always do. But for us, it's really about adding more value to that install base. And that's really what the company's been at work on for the last year, which is that install base that said, I got to get operations under control. I'm going to make sure that I've got my on-premise footprint right size to the you know the nth degree. But they're under pressure to get to the cloud too, just like everybody else. Um, and being able to do that with security and also with economics, because as you know, you've probably heard everyone talks about the cloud and says, "Yeah, we got to get to the cloud." Um, the great news about the cloud is it's cheap to fail. Yeah, that's right. It's really expensive to succeed. So we can't make this, you know, a fool's errand by making it more more expensive and more risky. Yeah, and this is also the tough thing. And it's funny, you know, before we get started, I I, remind, I tell people, I'm like, hey, I'm not going to talk about competitors and whatever. And, and I, I've already started a name dropped. I I chose NetApp just as an example to call off because, you know, I'm actually, you know, I had a lot of great friends there. And, and yeah. I know you're in a different, you're in a, you're differentiated from them in so many different ways. But the, the other thing is that when we look at like the IBMs, the, the Dells, the, these, you know, these folks at that, that's their target market is different. You know, right. and unfortunately, you also end up getting compared against that. But meanwhile, right. like off the podium, you know, in the Olympics, the podium is all that matters. And fourth place is the worst feeling ever, as they say. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the storage market, the fourth place is a pretty fantastic place to live because <laughs> yeah. you're not fighting the top three. And you actually have an incredibly large mid-market base and a small enterprise and mid-sized enterprise and even large enterprise that like, it's not like before in like the 2000s even when you'd say, or 90s, I'm like, I'm going to use this vendor for storage, which right. means if I want to, ch- I've like, I've got another vendor that's coming in and they say they've got this great storage. So we yeah. need to get rid of the first vendor. And they're like, no, no. I go in a rack and I see nine logos in the rack now and everybody's okay with it finally. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly right. And 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 so the key being can you uh enable what they already have? When I'm working with companies, I always talk we always talk about the basics. Who where when where why how. And then you get to B2B tech and you add the additional W with. Yeah. Who can you do it with? Because these companies that that you know you're familiar with that you walk into and talk to that I do they have everything they have something from everybody and you know you can go in there and make a technical argument well this should have been should have been retired because we decided to go over here but there were people there and there probably still are people there that made those choices for very good reasons uh, and so they don't want to let those things go and and that's a this is so true in, in the backup and archive land that Falcon Store lives in, where someone chose NetBackup and chose Veeam and chose Commvault and chose and chose and chose for very good reasons. Yeah. Do you really want to go through the pain of getting rid of that and redoing all of that sort of stuff? You can if you have the time and you have the budget. But right now, people are hard-pressed for time, and they're even harder-pressed for budget. Yeah. So how do you fit in and add value? The thing that you, you, it comes out very clearly is your understanding the impact of partnership mm-hmm. and alliance and that we go together and that competitors aren't really competitors. They're, you know, coopetition. We will end up in the data center with them. We will end up in the cloud with them. And yeah. even when you talked about like the partner and alliance ecosystem, it's a big move, you know, to make that shift in because you're now going on a list yeah. with other, you know, competitive vendors. And so you've got to differentiate to that partner. But the advantage is that that partner is the, you know, the the famed trusted advisor phrase, right? And, and but they've got a relationship. 
Yeah. They build one, you build one with them. They build one with the customer. They bring you in together and it becomes that with instead of sell to it's sell with. And it's such a fantastic move to make that transition. Yeah. And it's even more true when you think about, you know, the channel providers that are the, you know, if there is such a thing as a trusted advisor, I think they may be even more trusted than the big vendors because, you know, they, they're going to get paid one way or another. Right. Let's just face the facts. Whereas that's right. <laughs> it's a war between the big uh, technology providers, and so that's where I think you're you're exactly right. We can, if companies can walk in and be part of the equation and uh, let people continue to use what they've already have on the floor um, and their choices that they've made for the cloud, it just makes it that much easier to be trusted. Um, you know, we talk a lot about <clears throat> backup and archive as being really old. Well, yes, it's old data, but it's also an old style approach. And so there are a number of folks who will you know, say, hey, let's sweep that all clean and start all over again. But that's a pretty hard proposition. Um, and, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a very large uh, IBM focused uh, channel provider. And he said, we tried that. It's just a tough, tough sale, not because yeah. there's not value, but just because people got other things to do. They got to get their container story straight. You know, they got, they got to do all of that work. Um, and they've also got to be working on security because this has been 2020 has been the year of uh, year of breaches. Right. So, um, yes. Yeah. Their focus is elsewhere. So how do you make this simple becomes a big part of the equation. And, you know, the, this thing of it sounds easy, you know, in practice, uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, as you walk through, you know, like, oh, you gotta do is do this, move your iCars away. We'll transition to this new method and, you know, we'll ingest your previous, like, no, no, like they can barely get through if they go one week off of their archive you know, and back up an offsite process, let alone to think about ingesting it. And look, backup protection and data archiving is a compliance thing. Yeah. It is a risk reduction thing, right? It's there is it is a regulated requirement for many companies. Right. They're not very likely to suddenly say, yeah, we're gonna take five years of archive and we're going to ingest it, you know, metadata into your platform. And pretty cool if, if we're going to suddenly trust a four-year-old backup that was done through another system. So it is right. very much a roll in beside, mm -hmm. transition the workflows. That's where the comfort comes. If you think that, you know, the unfortunate arrogance when people come in there, where I'm just going to unseat the competitor. Like, no, you're going to sit beside the competitor for four years. Right. <laughs> That's what you're going to do. You know, for Falcon Store, uh, if you go back <clears throat> to when I first met the company, the competitor was tape. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. uh, and, you know, I remember. It is <laughs> in a lot of places, right? One of my teams, uh, you know, was working with Falcon Store as a partner. And, you know, that team was out promoting um, eliminate tape now. Well, guess what? Tape one. It's still <laughs> yeah. here. And, um, and so it's more about uh, how do you use tape and where do you use tape and for what? Um, and, and I think that becomes the equation for, particularly for the larger companies as opposed to those that that you know they started without tape, so therefore they never needed, you right. know, this capability. That that's just a different market than what what Falcon Store serves, um, versus those that are using the tape process aggressively, but they know that they need to do more than that, and they too are under pressure to get to the cloud. And the question is, tape is relatively cheap. Can they make it work with the cloud? Yeah, it's. It is such an interesting thing when I saw like you know you look at the archival options that are that are out in the cloud and the you know of course the reality is a lot of the infrastructure there is if purely on demand ephemeral infrastructure so of course you know the first thing you think is what happens to my data when I go to you know how do I get it to offline storage right. somehow right. 
because uh, we don't even often trust secondary online storage as a true. So we have to have like first tier is like business continuity to secondary site. Right. Second tier is, you know, and uh, let's go to somewhere that's offline and, and completely offline. So I can make sure it's archived. It's in a steel box somewhere. And, yeah. you know, it's with Iron Mountain or something like that. Right. And I mean, and look, the cloud, I'll, I'll, I, I don't want to be the guy that uses the news as a marker. But as we're recording here, we just saw that the OVH uh, company, mm -hmm. cloud, literally lost an entire data center. Yeah. So this and it's like any Amazon, anybody could have gone through that. I'm not picking on OVH. I'm calling out that OVH suffered what no one could have planned for. And they do, right? They say like they've got more data centers. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you know, if that was your primary data and there was no secondary copy or worse, your secondary copy isn't somewhere else in the same data center, which it often is. Yeah. Now what, right? Yeah. Well, and I've been out talking to for instance, all the analysts and saying, guys, I need <clears throat> to know where cloud fits in the three, two, one equation, yeah. right? The notion of three, two, one backup has been around for quite some time, right? Three copies, two media and one offsite. Yeah. And for the large companies, that's actually not good enough anymore. And then the other thing goes, so what is offsite or offline? Uh, is it just, tape that's in a mountain right. or is it, uh, you know, a copy that is secure in the cloud. And, and none of them have updated this, but I think this is something where companies that I'm talking to are looking for guidance on that front. And it's, you know, I think there is an opportunity to really declare that, um, you know, unfortunately for say OVH, um, you know, one of the things that we have been able to do is say, listen, you may want to, just replicate the data to a secondary site or replicate the data to a cloud. But you can also replicate the entire system, right? The software and the data, right. replicate that to a secondary data center, or you can use, you know, an Equinix, or you can use, uh, you know, Amazon as the location for your secondary data center and close your secondary data center. So it, it I mean, you hate to say that it always comes down to choice, but it really does when it comes to what's your risk profile um, as it relates to this data. It becomes, it's funny, I, in software, I'm surprised by how many times I remind people of what is the basis of financial uh, profiling, which is KYC, know your customer. Know your customer is all aimed at understanding risk profile. Right. That's and right. then you invest against the KYC as your matrix of comfort and risk. Yeah. And when we get into data and ownership, like, of course, there's lots of options, like you said, but, you know, what are the right ones that fit the risk profile, the cost profile, mm -hmm. and finding that equilibrium? And this is why, yeah, I love this idea of a common data plane right. that now gives you the ability to make that underlying choice and you know you've got a common way to access and, and manage it. Right. And I think that's where we're going to see the fun part is the unification on different platforms, on different providers. And and this is why I love the the sweet spot where where you and the team are are sitting. And like I said, you got the customer account that shows you're doing something right. Yep. You know, even though Falcon Store may be a, a quiet player relative to some other folks that people may know the names of as well. Yeah. You've yeah, got a really that, good business. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's funny because this year of, of 2020, uh, you know, the company had not, not a ton, but had definitely, you know, account of customers who called up and said, I have this stack of tapes over here. I need help because I can't bring my people on site to deal with this stuff anymore. And this wasn't really their, their operational, you know, kind of weekly full type process. This was the stuff that was stuck in the corner. Yeah. Over. So we had, you know, one customer calls up and says, I have 20 petabytes of tape I need to ingest and um, I need you to help me get that to the cloud. And wow. that was not happening in 2019. 
<laughs> no, that's right. That's the type of thing that I, I think it's going to cause, this is going to cause everyone to take a look back. And, and similarly, you know, I was on the phone with, uh, you know, a larger customer um, the other day and they're on a corporate mandate to shrink the number of data centers they have. Yeah. So when you say, Hey, you're, you're replicating to one of your other data centers, but you could actually replicate that to a colo and then be out of the data center business for, for that data center. That was music to their ears, but everyone's going through the right sizing post. Let's hope to get to the post COVID right sizing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I often, I remember, and like you said, the idea of the repatriation that happened and we called it the, I called it the boomerang effect. We had a lot of folks that like, let's move an app to the cloud and they're like, whoa, that was a terrible idea. You know, we weren't ready for it. So they bring it back. But as you said, in that discussion with Matt Eastwood, it's like, that's a misnomer. If you actually look at what's coming back, it was entirely appropriate that it came back because it shouldn't have been there in the bloody first place, you know, but now that we've looked through and, you know, uh, what was the other thing my favorite? My friend Randy Bias, he says, the cloud is cheaper as long as you're willing to pay more. Right. And right. what we've, but what's different about it is the way in which you manage that expense. Mm -hmm. And uh, like as a business, purely it's operational versus capital. So it is treated differently. We've got more and more companies that are all moving to subscription styles, focusing on ARR versus you know large capital contracts. Right. So what you're having is the business world is catching up to the ability to consume cloud because mm -hmm. they know because they're they're trying to convert their business to be cloud-like. Yeah. So they're yep. kind of ready. And now, as you said, now but they say, oh God. Like I got this, I got a, a rack full of tapes and, and disc and, you know, mid-tier storage that's holding my old archives. I, I need to make sure this is somewhere else and distributed safely. And like I said, last year was, and I mean, it taught us some really hard lessons about how we need to operate. Yeah. And you can see the cloud vendors, you know, respond, right? I mean, Amazon Azure, um, Amazon and Azure have both come out and, you know, done, um, you know, in the case of, of Amazon, have come out with new services to uh, lower the cost profile. Uh, you know, Azure did the same thing for Web Archives. And then you have, I was just on talking to them, um, you know, our friends at Wasabi that are the upstart that are saying, guess what? No egress fees. Um, oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and they're thriving. So, the good news is now we're beginning to get choice in the cloud. We were so used to having all those choices that that you and I know and, and everyone out there knows in the data center. I could choose from Dell, NetApp, you know, Hitachi, IBM, HPE, and I could play them all off one another. That was not the case in the cloud, um, right. but, but it's getting, getting there to that point. Yeah, and there, at one point there was, you know, I can't remember what year it was. We've probably had it year after year, is this idea they called it the race to zero, right? As we saw storage uh, prices, especially were precipitously falling right. in the cloud providers. And I sat there watching going, well, this isn't really a race to zero. It's a race to zero competitive differentiation is what it is. At some point, yeah. they're all going to get to a spot where they're going to say, I'm not saying it's collusion. I don't know a friendlier word for it, but where they, they all agree, okay, look, if we all, if we, we know we're at, zero margin right now let's right. just stay there and focus on other differentiating services and so i think right. we kind of got there and it leveled and then you saw this the service approach and it lets you bring machine learning and, and other ways to interact with it but egress network yeah. fees data right. to store is one is only one tiny part of the function it's the how do you move that data around what happens when you do stuff against that data? Exactly. Um, now you've got a different sort of cost model to challenge with. Yeah, and uh, even you know for things that that I know that some of the cloud guys are contemplating, like uh, what's the fee profile for CPU usage when I'm going to be using compression and dedupe algorithms to shrink the cost of data? Well, they're not going to give up what the customer is spending you know, for the CPUs to, to chunk that all up and, and dedupe it. That's right. 
It's the one thing though, at least through all of it, is even in a very competitive marketplace where everybody's got to survive, right? And got to build and got to grow. And, and we're seeing this stuff. You really, really are seeing people rethink how we can provide IT storage network and like all these services. Like we are really seeing a, a good way that there's lots of competitive alternatives on the provider side. And then that frees you and, and your team and, and other folks in the industry have to say, like, let's just focus on doing that front-end customer experience because we can take care of these beautiful API, you know, mm -hmm. declarative backends and I can do what I need to do to put it there. But let's just unify the front so that my customer knows I'm the place that they can talk to and then I'm the, the sort of provider and then they can choose whatever commoditized underlay that they want. Right. That's right. And, you know, that's the... That's the good news is that's what's changed. And, and it has to, when you think about the amount of data that the enterprise is responsible for keeping around um, and for timeframes that no one even thought about when we started this game. Um, you know, one of my teams, again, you know, in the 2004, you know, we were talking to the financial companies and for all the trade, trading data and then your account records and my account records, seven years was the retention timeframe that was mandated by the SEC. Right. Now you think about a seven year archive and you think you're at least multiplying that by a factor of 10. And uh, what you don't see is you know, companies really ever getting rid of data actively. It's not something that, that they, that they really right. do because, you know, frankly, it's going to be a bad day for that person who, who gets rid of the stuff that they shouldn't have. And it's going to be the next guy's problem to deal with. Well, how do I shrink the cost envelope? Um, you know, against that, the data that's the hangover because secondary data is growing just so quickly. Yeah, there's there's things that I've learned in time is that, you know, we keep things a lot longer than we should, including concert shirts and data. And the difference is that you won't get fired for getting rid of your KISS t-shirt. You will, however, be at risk if you lose data. And it's funny when we talk about the the seven-year thing, which it's I, I worked in financial services for a long time and I, I chased down for a long time to actually find out where's the seven written down somewhere. And it's actually never there, but it's like a, a reasonable time. And, and like, we've all, we kind of landed on seven. What was it was a good number. Yeah. But what we did learn was that, yeah, through this, you know, retention first, it was like, keep it for regulatory purposes, for safety, for risk. Right. But now the difference is, I want to keep that data to use it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think that's the thing that's incumbent upon everybody, including uh, including Falcon Store, is you know there's this notion of having it for the rainy day, and then there's the notion of having it for the day that you can actually um, make it of material use to you. Right. And you see this in, in certain industries. I mean, for instance, you know, large, uh, you know, airline manufacturer that we work with. Well, they got to keep that stuff around, but they actually learn stuff from that data by having all that. The same is true when you think about EDA and you think about chip designs. Um, right. You know, those people never get rid of that. And then the new chip design is called genomics, and uh, no one ever dumps genomic data. And it was <laughs> true before COVID, and it's even even uh, uh, more true now. Yeah, it's. I I love that we've been able to finally find a reason to make use of this stuff, and then again, it reintroduces the importance of understanding where your data storage is, where your data is, how it's managed, how it's offloaded, you know, and. You know, even though we've got online use and data warehouses and data lakes and all this other stuff, it's th those classic processes have to exist. We still have to just good old fashioned, hey, you know, server X just went away, right. need it back. 
you know, that that's, and no matter how many times I look at the cloud options, a mm -hmm. lot of the stuff, you know, even when you just store stuff is like large objects on, I'll pick on AWS because I know Glacier, unfortunately, too well. Mm -hmm. Fired up there, super cheap, you know, cheap and deep, slow and low, whatever you want to call it. But it is very slow because if you want that data back, like if I recorded our video here and I uploaded to Glacier, it would take me about a day to get it back. And it's like yeah. a gigabyte. There's and that's, that's for a good SLA. That's right, and, and and that's the thing. It's it's completely asynchronous. There's no there's no guarantees. There's no QoS. It can just die in the middle, and it take another day. They'll retry. It's it's not consistent, so it cannot be used really. in my opinion, right. as a safe target for really true archival storage. If you ever need to go back and get it, if you you know treat it like a photo album that you're never going to open again, good on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and then. You know, the other thing is just like <clears throat> you want to have the ability, like we were talking about before, to choose, you know, from the vendors that you already trust internally. Same thing is true about the cloud. And cloud is the location of the new lock-in, right? And uh, so one of the things we've spent a bunch of time is making sure that when we take these data streams, we actually put them into a container. And the containers are decided designed to be, you know, self-describing and complete. And so the idea is that a backup stream, you know, a virtual tape looks like what we would look at, think about a PDF today. And I can take that PDF and I can put that PDF in this cloud or that cloud, or I can move it from this cloud or that cloud. I'm not dependent or reliant on anything from that cloud provider so that I can avoid that lock-in. I mean, and, and you know, you bring up uh, glacier and then you know deep glacier and the irony is that that's where the tape is today right now they won't none of those guys will say that but that's where the tape is and um, so we have conversations with our customers quite frequently about it's not whether you're going to use tape or not it's just where you're going to use that tape and who's going to be in charge of that tape are you going to be in charge of that tape or is your cloud provider going to be in charge of that tape yeah, and as the old thing goes, right? Uh, I, I I don't really care as much about my backup solution, but I sure care about my restore solution because right. <laughs> everything seems like it's there until it's not. And and exactly. this, you know, exactly. it's the trust. And like you said, we've got other providers and other partners we want to engage with. And so, is yeah, what's the best way to do that? And like you said, lock in. There's no no better way to lock you in than put your data somewhere. Uh, yeah. Zero. No, that's right. And it's, you know, the company from a long time ago and really focused on throughput as in throughput so that I can meet the backup window. Okay. Got it. No question. That's important. But to your point, how about how quickly can I restore? And also how can I ensure that this data is ready to restore when I need it? And, and so changing the, the old operational paradigm of, okay, somebody ring up Iron Mountain, get those tapes back in here, and we're going to try a remount. That's our manual way of checking whether this data is still uh, recoverable. And you know, so now what we do is we use these containers, and we, we have an executable that looks at you know, what the data profile was before, what it is now, and if there's been any rot or corruption or problem therein. Um, and, and so it's not truly a restore, but it's at least a proxy, an automated proxy for restore uh, and restorability of this data. It, it is a perfect sort of way of making the change and you know sort of easing the process change and i think that's where it is you know yeah. like everything we've talked about you know we take the technology names out of it and and in the end it's very much process driven it's very yeah. much trust driven uh and this is why also you know if you're gonna if you're gonna pick a company to bet on you want one that's survived through you know challenging times and and that's that's got a really good history that's got a solid you know referenceable customers, large scale customers that you can go to, you know, it's, it was probably interesting for you, you know, coming to Falcon store at, 
you know, its phase in, in where it was mm -hmm. and kind of starting a rebirth. And the other thing I, we talked at the start, I said, the beautiful part about overnight success is it takes about 10 years to become one. Right. And it's also very easy to lose track of those overnight successes as they become normalized. Yeah. When well, in fact you can become a repeated overnight success in between these sort of, you know, uh, troughs of, of challenge. Yeah. And, and we don't sort of advertise quote unquote, the company as a software defined company, but it right. is a software company. And the ultimate irony of, you know, the great movement in software defined is, as you know, is that if you start out as software defined and don't ship appliances, you die before you get <laughs> to the point that you can have any influence. Um, so everyone has to start out that way. And in, in that respect, Falcon Store did. Um, I've been with other software defined companies and actually been on the M&A side of buying other software defined companies that because they didn't start out with it meant to their peril or to their valuation, right. you know, they didn't get it because it's just tough to establish yourself. It's way easier to have a value added software and service capability that can run on the true, you know, the trusted vendors that, that have been around and, and they're not going anywhere. Right? Yeah. yeah. Hitachi, we do a lot of work with Hitachi. And if you look at Hitachi, in the IDC numbers, it's basically in storage anyway, in, it's rain or shine. Every quarter, it's 400 million, it doesn't go up, it does not go down. I mean, it's uncanny. It's like California weather, like LA weather. <laughs> Just check the temperature, all right. It's exactly the same as it was yesterday. <laughs> so they, you know, their trust is, uh, the trust that their customers have in them and they've gone through their own changes, just like all these vendors have. That's right. We get to we get to um, to use a little bit of that uh, that history to help make these changes and help these customers make these changes when they want to. We're not forcing them away from tape. They adopt the cloud on their terms. Not we're not telling them do this. Everything you were doing before is wrong. And even as an industry, I, I, I find, you know, you and I are, we're, we're way too close to it. We've got our ear to the ground of so many of these companies and we watch and we really like, we look for changes and we look for transitions, yeah. you know, and like I said before, like we, we attach a history as humans to a name and, and, and we do it ourselves, right? I very often have probably at giving a keynote somewhere said, is anyone from Oracle here? I'm going to make an Oracle joke, right? Like we, 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 we have these things, we joke about the stuff, but the truth is Oracle, another great example, right? They're, they're doing a great cloud business. Yeah. It's certainly not AWS, but as while we've been joking about the number of lawyers it takes to run the cloud, mm -hmm. they're running a fantastic cloud business. Yeah. And so what we'll see is five years from now, there won't be any more, you know, tongue in cheek jokes about it, except by, you know, weird, you know, pundits like me <laughs> still, still sneak those in every once in a while, but that's it, right? We, you know, HDS, you know, Hitachi and Hitachi Ventara, and like we've seen this consolidation that they've gone through. Yeah. And then, you know, will eventually be just pure software play. And it's, it's really neat to see, like you said, if, but if you're not software on appliance, if you're, if your business was the appliance and not the software, you were going to have a bad run. Yeah. Yeah. You were going to have a bad run now when you, when you've grown up. And it, the irony is that when you're the young, you know, when you're on the young side, you're going to have a really bad run if you don't have that to keep you going and sustain you. Right. It's just, it's such a paradox. It is really wild. I mean, it keeps Supermicro being the largest hardware manufacturer in the industry, most likely because they are often the white box providers for a lot of those platforms. Right. Yeah, exactly. And look who's growing in storage, Huawei, right? Right. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we just did a 20 petabyte uh, opportunity with Huawei. It was crazy. Um, but, you know, it was just the guys, uh, the, the last guys that we expected to see at the table because they're not the traditional big name, but they're becoming a big name. Yeah. Um, and those are, those are numbers we hear more often. 
Like we we used to joke about petabytes being the future of data, you know, storage sizes, and they're like, "Oh, come on, you and flying cars." You're like, "No, no, this is this is reality." That's right. I mean, it really is. Um, you know, we uh, we have one service provider that you know is really trying to uh, round up the old IBM mainframe market, right? So they're very good with the, you know the old AS four hundred platform and uh, you know, the IBM I platform now, and they just hit the, this is a slightly different profile of customer that they target, but, um, you know, mainframe centric, they now just exceeded 300 customers and 70 petabytes. Wow. And that 70 petabytes, about half of those customers have a small onsite appliance. And that replicates to, in this case, their cloud not not IBM or not AWS or Azure, but they've created their own cloud. So it's a, a, the, you're gonna see, I think, a lot more of the service providers looking at backup and recovery as a service and saying, that's a really good business for me. And it offloads that responsibility from these overstretched IT teams that are saying, I got my hands full with converting from you know, physical to virtual, virtual to containers. That's and, right. You know, the, the business that you're in and your uh, your other job, right? Well, to learn that like, you don't want to spend your money and your engineering time on certain things. And we've now accepted that like, yeah, DR as a service, backup as a service to a consolidated cloud platform. Like we know we're like, okay, I'm, I'm paying more because I'm seeing the real bill come in. Like we actually had the bill the whole time. You cut up Iron Mountain and your in your courier charges and your physical day, all this other stuff. Yeah. It was hidden behind a lot of other invoices, you know, running your own data yeah. center with your air cool and everything. Like, right. When you hide it, when I went to actually re I was looking at relocating a data center to a co-location facility and I worked for a large financial company. Mm -hmm. And we looked at it and said, okay, well. Colo, according to the size we're choosing, will be, you know, in and around $85,000 a month. Yeah. And of course, the CIO is like, you've got to be crazy. We're going to pay $85,000 a month for somebody to host our data center. Right. It's right over, the, like, you just, you physically point to the room and you're like, but that's not free. Let's back up the cost against it. And we realized once we worked it out, it was cheaper to run than to move right. the bloody stuff over to the cloud, right? There's, and then from there, 24 seven operations, 365 day protection, like five nines, all the stuff that I didn't have. And it was actually in the end would have been cheaper to run. And so right. the choice was made. But if you didn't look to the reality of the real cost and the intangible cost of the operational impact, it's hard, you know, I think we're getting there. Like more people get that you got to just look at the decision as a numbers decision and the numbers line up now. Yeah, I, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, th that's the, when we start looking at, you know, this space and and, and the space that, that Falcon Store is in and backup and recovery, it's like the first thing is that we talk about is, um, okay, so how do I take costs out and where does that cost come from? And often it's, but all my backup vendors already have dedupe, right? Right. And they do. Isn't dedupe all the same? And, but it's when you can put this all into a global pool and start looking across all these different streams, you start seeing the magic happen. And, and that's just for that initial copy. It might be on a SAN. And then now I'm making the SAN a lot smaller. So I'm shrinking the footprint and the cost profile and the management overhead of the person having to deal with that and then you look at the second copy and say okay now i've got to put that on tape okay i've got to rehydrate to go to tape I mean, there's no magic around around that's right you can't get out of that one <laughs> get out of that one but if i can move it to a second site or move it to the cloud and it's dehydrated then i'm starting to see some savings pile up and then you're right the economic uh, argument becomes a lot easier to to put down on a very simple piece of paper not not something that takes five sheets you know that's right. the envelope that says here's the math it's not not too complicated to see it works out
Yeah, the industry's ready. I mean, the businesses are ready. And last year definitely, you know, urged us to rethink right. a lot of these decisions that we were kind of afraid to visit and revisit. I think that's, it made, I mean, I talked to customer after customer through my company and, and they're like, look, we would never have done this, but we just, we're closing this data center up because we've got literally, we'd one, I had one company and they had two like skids full of servers. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we can't get in to build it. And we can't take the risk. So what do we do? And they're like, okay, well, time to look at the cloud. And right. suddenly what was not an option became a, an option. And as a result, it made them change the way they do things. And they've right. achieved incredible benefits by changing their operational model. Right. And then matching the technology to what was the business requirement. And it like the funny thing is when you, you go back to like classic like positioning and in messaging and value drivers and positive business outcomes, you're like, oh yeah, that's actually how it works. They actually got a new operating model that saves them money and people. And it meant that they can have people around the world access their stuff. And they suddenly, you know, shaved off their long-term expenses by getting rid of a lease and doing other things. It was, it was very interesting to watch it, that you would have never made the decision until it was a forced decision. And yeah. then they're so thankful that they were put in the position, not why they were put there, of course, but they were thankful that they were able to do it. And the benefit, no employees lost. Right. They, Incre- it was huge they, impact for them, right? Right. It's not a, uh, it's not a, um, you know, you know, there's not going to be a real loser in this outcome. It's going to be, you've got to just deploy these people over here. I mean, you know, you and I, and, and many people here will see, you know, listen to folks in the industry that are thinking about digital transformation. And that's a, that's a gargantuan term that, um, I don't always know what it means, but yeah. We know that it's a very high priority and that means there's going to be more applications and more requirements and more and more and more coming. we got to get people over there uh, right. into that. And that means we got to free up capital in the places that are not uh, driving those primary applications because they're under siege. You know, their businesses are under siege. So we've been around the industry a while, Chris. You know, know. I'm curious, what's the... What's the thing that you've seen the most consistent, even though the tech has changed over your time in the industry? Well, it sounds simple, but I was able to, uh, for a time, and I'm a, I'm a strategy consultant by background, and uh, I did a bunch of work with Jeffrey Moore, the Crossing the Chasm innovator uh, over at Stanford. And... Um, you know, I think it comes back to that, which is fundamentally it's solution to a problem and thinking about the whole solution, what he would call the whole product and all the pieces and components that are needed to solve that problem. And, uh, you know, we read about it every day when you think about um, working backwards and um, what, you know, the folks at AWS uh, are, uh, you know, just um, ensconced in. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and I think that that is more true than ever. And, and so I've definitely seen companies, including, you know, the one that I'm working with now come out and be a little bit too focused on the new widget and maybe losing a little bit of sight of what's the problem um, that I'm solving and, and really going deep, not just saying the problem is backup and archive that tells you nothing. Right. Let's get down three more levels. What specifically is the problem? And, how do we how do we solve that and what are all the pieces that are required so maybe that's a trite one but as as it gets more and more complicated you got to go back to those kinds of basics i think it's it's very true i mean the goal by eli goldrat was not written in 20 you know 2009 when when gene kim was taking it and making devops and and the phoenix project and bringing the stuff through tripwire and making it a a reality you know, Goldrat wrote about this stuff decades ago. You know, yeah. those things are all we're doing is we're seeing them proven over time. But mm-hmm. the fundamentals have been there. It's just it's funny when you actually go deeper. 
I mean, I have a book on my bookshelf. It's downstairs. I, I should have it up here. Is uh, the business value of computers? It's the one that Steve Jobs says. This is what made me start a company and mm -hmm. build a computer because I saw the power it could have mm -hmm. and the real financial impact it could make. But it allowed me to build. He said it allowed him to build a business to do yeah. something fantastic, you know, make yeah. a dent in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, yeah. but those, again, the age of that book, I, I forget what the publishing date was, but it mm -hmm. was, it's again, decades old now, far mm -hmm. older than any of the technology, you know, we've touched. Yeah. And yet they, they still hold very true. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And crossing the chasm is probably maybe not that old, but it's, it's old as well. And um, the irony is that, when Jeff and Michael and the team update the book, they actually don't update the paradigm or the methodology. They right. update the examples because, <laughs> because, you know, uh, you know, no disrespect. No one wants to hear about the early days of the Oracle database anymore. What they want to hear about is uh, what happened at Nest and what happened at Waze uh, right. and what happened at, you know, Robinhood. Right or some or you know the newest example of of it, but the methodology remains the same. Yeah, it's so funny. I actually they just reissued the Pragmatic Programmer as well. They did like the twentieth or twenty fifth year re re edition. They said and they they went back to the well with a lot of stuff. And they realized most of the fundamentals were the same, but like you said, they had to update the languages and you know. But like the fundamentals were so like that core is still true. They just wanted to make sure that the references were relevant to a new reader so that it wasn't like, yeah, talking about, you know, old school stuff. Even like Built to Last, I often hear the the tough thing about Built to Last is that, well, most of the companies didn't last. Yeah. If, you, if you looked at them long enough, <laughs> they were built to last at the time it was written, but they almost all exited the business that they were vastly successful in because of a real divergence in in the business plan. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's your ability to shift with those changes that that makes you relevant, right? And 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 it indicates that you're built to last. Um, some of them weren't. Yeah. When and and I think so. It's funny, and I'll I'll go because in the background of your video, I see a beautiful cutaway acoustic there, which is always nice when you get an, someone who plays an acoustic and gets above the fourteenth fret for a change. I oh. like the uh, I like the reach there. Um, you know, what's amazing about technologists and, and you know, everything, when we take it outside of storage and backup and servers and whatever, like we see that the same things come true in, you know, guitars and you see like bicycles that you also you're, you're very familiar with. And actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk about your your cycling uh, history and, and your goals here because I was excited by this. Look at that, tour winners. There you go. A few... There's a few years blanked out there, are, sadly, for Mr. Armstrong. I don't know if that's the... That's right. I don't see a uh, U.S. Postal Service uh, jersey on here. No, that's a good move. That's, uh, I'm still torn on that one. But uh, <laughs> but you are... You know, I'd, I'd like to hear about Life Moves. Mm. Oh, Life Moves. Well, Life Moves is very interesting. So um, this is a... Uh, Basically, it's a local homeless uh, program that I work with. And, uh, you know, we know homelessness is a real problem um, in many different areas of the U.S., but any attempt to try and solve this at a macro level just always seems to fail. So I said, you know, instead of just writing a check uh, and saying that'll help, I got involved, and so I'm involved with a local homeless um, program here in um, the Bay Area where uh, really the good news about it is it's for people who are drug-free and are trying to get them their lives back together, and when I interact with them, I inevitably find that something came along, and whether it was their own drug use, whether it was a health problem, health problem of a family member. It just took their entire life sideways. And it took their life sideways for longer than they thought. And when they tried to catch back onto the spinning wheel, it was really hard. So 
do, and you'll you'll like on the bike side, what I do for them is a couple of things. One is I work with them on just basic things like cleaning up their resumes. Um, you know, sometimes this is a cleanup that's now 20 years in the making. Yeah. Trying them, you know, find that opportunity to get back engaged. And uh, everybody that's uh, homeless, you know, one of the things that's a, a basic need for them is transportation. So we try and I try and get every single one of them a bike. Uh, and uh, so I always am um, taking in bikes and fixing them up and either providing them to the people that are in the program or sometimes when they're a little bit too nice, because I do live in Palo Alto, which is um, a bike theft capital of the world. Oh my. When too nice. Uh, we take those and sell them. And uh, these donations that come in, I fix them up and we sell them. And uh, we put the proceeds to work behind these folks. So really good program that uh, seeing some some good success. And it's, you know, the only way to solve it is local. That's it. And, you know, the only thing that's as fantastic as a bicycle for the mind is truly a bicycle for a human and, and giving them mobility, giving them access and and, uh, and I was excited when I read about that and I thought this is really, really neat. I, I'd love to actually spend you know, more time to talk about much more, uh, Chris, yeah. but I know we're coming up to our time and thank you very much. You know, number one, uh, for, you know, that's a, a fantastic program. And I love that no one is above giving back. And in fact, one of the best things we can do is the further we get into having success and being able to give back is to do more of it. And it's yeah. nice to see somebody, you know, seeing the value and, and the impact you can have. Well, and just, you know, for for those people out there that are doing something similar, because I'm not alone doing this, but I get more out of it than they do. Right. It reminds me how fortunate uh, we are to be in this industry that's created so much opportunity. And um, it's just a, it's a great thing to be part of. Great thing for my kids to be part of with me. That's it. That's a, also a great thing. It's it's not just a, an act an action, but it's a legacy. You know, it's something we can teach our kids as, and and others in the industry and and, and our peer group. So, yeah. uh, so Chris, uh, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Uh, I love what you and the folks are doing. I'd love to get reconnected again in future. We'll t dig more into bikes and guitars a bit because that's that's really where the fun is. But. I, I'm glad we could go deep on some of the tech and ecosystem stuff because it's not often I get a chance to to dig in on on people that are doing this successfully and and hearing, you know, the real honest feedback about, you know, where these challenges are and, and where folks can help. So if someone wants to reach out and get connected to you, Chris, what's the best way to do so? Just hit me on LinkedIn. All right. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris Cummings uh, uh, from Falcon Store, and you're an advisor as well. I again, so much I, I wanted to explore, but we just—it's such a good run. I could didn't want to slow any of this conversation down. I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. Thanks a lot, Eric. Really appreciate it too. Great to be here.